This is an ABC podcast. Well, hello there and welcome. This is Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines. Well, Vladimir Putin has lost troops, ground, hardware and credibility. He's cornered and wounded and he's doubling down on his war in Ukraine. Now, Putin has called up Russia's 300,000 reservists. He's announced Moscow is ready to annex pro-Russian separatist regions and other territories it controls in Ukraine. And he's warned the West that he's not bluffing when he talks about being ready to use nuclear weapons, all of which just increases the odds of mistakes and miscalculation. So to understand what all this means at this juncture in the war, both on the battlefield and in Russia, we turn to Catherine Stoner. She's Professor of Political Science at Stanford University in California and author of Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. Hi there, Catherine. Hi, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. And Giselle Donnelly is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, where she focuses on national security and military strategy. Welcome back to the program, Giselle. A pleasure to be with you, Sam. Now, Catherine, Russia has never used a nuclear weapon before, but at this point in a war, and remember, this is a war that has now dragged on much longer than anyone, including Putin, thought, are we closer to the Kremlin potentially making that kind of decision, either on a strike, a nuclear strike on a NATO nation, or a tactical strike on Ukraine? Well, I think we can't dismiss the, the possibility um, that that could happen. Uh, I don't think it's a probability, um, but I sure wouldn't dismiss it as uh, as a possibility. Mr. Putin is has become enamored of, uh, in particular, his shorter-range nuclear weapons, sometimes uh, known as tactical nuclear weapons, and it isn't a sure thing. That's why I said it isn't a, isn't a probability. I think the the possibility went from you know zero percent to five percent, um, but presumably with the annexation of parts of these four regions of of uh, Ukraine that Russia has just tried to legitimate through ridiculous referenda, um, where ninety five percent of the population and two of them allegedly voted in favor of joining up with Russia. Now it gives him. Uh, some legitimacy to saying, well, if you attack us, those regions, Ukraine, then, you know, you're attacking the homeland. And according Mm. to our nuclear doctrine, we can use nuclear weapons to fight that. Well, calls are growing to accelerate Western armed deliveries to Ukraine, including tanks, fighter aircraft and long range missiles. Giselle, why poke at a cornered, wounded animal especially one with a vast arsenal of nuclear weapons? Well, uh, because there's the opportunity to, uh, if not kill it, uh, then at least uh, declaw it in a very uh, profound way. The fact that Putin is in a corner is an opportunity as well as a danger. You know, Russia's been on uh, sort of expansionist, stop and start program all through Putin's reign. Uh, He has favored nuclear threats throughout his reign. And the Ukrainian successes on the battlefield have created really remarkable uh, conditions. In your intro, Tom, alluded to the mobilization, partial mobilization of 
Russian reservists. So there's, you know, kind of a window of opportunity before those troops can reach the battlefield. And even if they're not very effective, to try to uh, bring the war to a conclusion that the Ukrainians can accept. And I think that Eastern Europeans can accept and certainly would be in line with American interests. Isn't there a danger, though, of triggering Putin into doing something rash? I mean, we're soon approaching the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the world teetered on the brink of total annihilation after Soviet nuclear missiles were sent to America's backyard. Catherine, six decades later, shouldn't we be afraid because the spectre of a new Cuban crisis has never loomed larger? Well, this is pretty different in many respects from the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? It's, uh, that was putting missiles potentially into Cuba. That is Soviet missiles, denial that it was happening by Khrushchev. And then, of course, we knew it was happening and uh, and he was uh, had backed down at, um, at the last minute from installing them. So not not using them, but and so that that's where it's different. Here, there is a threat to actually use them, right? And Russia has missiles within striking distance. Although, what we're hearing, at least um, in in the unclassified world, is that the the they don't see evidence by satellites that Russia has begun to move around any of its nuclear forces. But something might have happened over the weekend to, to you know, have Jake Sullivan appear on all of the American... National Security Advisor to the President. Right. Uh, all of the American Sunday, you know, talk shows um, basically saying, you know, Putin really better not use a nuclear weapon, better not use a nuclear weapon. So I think that was messaging to the Russians as much as it was messaging to the American public. So clearly there's there's a concern and and they have lots of different delivery systems and we don't have good communications with them anymore. So I would say in a sense, you know, we're much closer to the possible use of a nuclear weapon than we were even during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But one does not need sense. to be a foreign policy wonk to recognise that this war could get very ugly. Giselle, are you and Catherine underestimating what a desperate Russia will do? After all, let's be frank, Putin and company are hardly wussies. <laughs> well, but they're, again, they're weak. Uh, I wouldn't want to handicap the likelihood, and no sane person would be dismissive of uh, the danger that that Russia's nuclear weapons pose. However, we shouldn't be so terrified th uh, that we are self-deterred from doing things, w again, would help end this war, not only more rapidly and at a lesser cost in blood, but uh, would would bring it to what we would regard as a successful co uh, conclusion. Again, Putin's been making this threat not only since day one of this round of his Ukraine war, but off and on uh, through his 20 years uh, as Russia's leader. So what are we to make of it exactly? Or, and mm -hmm. and or how self-deterred uh, will we continue to be. My guests are Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington and Professor Catherine Stoner from Stanford University in California. Now, we've mentioned in passing this partial mobilisation order. It's widely believed that this is an act of desperation. 
But Putin has other cards up his sleeve. Catherine, couldn't the Kremlin, for instance, still completely cut off gas and oil exports to Europe? Well, they've pretty much cut off gas imports <laughs> or exports to Europe. But this is not the tool. This is uh, There's a little bit of this in my book, actually, as well. This is not the tool that it was um, even, you know, three years ago, because, you know, while things look very dire for uh, Germany in particular and other parts of Europe in terms of the supply of natural gas, um, because Nord Stream 2 didn't come online, the pipeline from, from Russia to Germany that had been built and um, uh, Germany never allowed it to open. And Nord Stream 1 was uh, running natural gas and has been for, you know, a decade um, into Germany. But the Russians themselves closed it down for what they call technical reasons. Um, and they needed uh, a part from Canada. That part was shipped over uh, and they were supposed to open it up again. And then they never opened it up more than 20% flow. And then they've just closed it in the last two or three weeks completely. So the, the Russians did that to themselves. Um, in the meantime, we've been able to supply um, some liquefied natural gas um, to the uh, Europeans. And um, the Europeans have just signed um, big deals with the UAE. And so for now, as long as the winter's not too cold, it looks as though they have a not, uh, natural gas um, without Russia. So that force has left the barn. Um, and the, the Russians are probably never going to get the European market back because they've proven themselves to be able to, you know, willing to weaponize uh, natural gas and energy. And so why should they ever be considered reliable again? Giselle, do you agree with Catherine there? Or is it a, or is it a fair bet? And, the, and let me just cut in here. This okay. is presumably yeah. Putin's calculation that Ukraine's losses and Europe's hardships, especially if it's a very cold northern winter, won't that compel Washington and its NATO allies to then accept a negotiated settlement that legitimizes Putin's land gains since February? Giselle? This is a card that he's been trying to play all along. We haven't had a winter no, yet. No, but the Russians are the most likely suspects to have been the ones who blew the holes in the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines. Again, we don't really know, but... but why would Russia do that? It, it, why if, would Russia if, do that? Well, that's a, that's a really darn good question. I mean, that just... I, I have an answer to, if you want. Oh, well, I, I would love to hear it because <laughs> if if they were going to use the energy weapon in this way... They've just blown a yeah. hole in so their own weapon. So, Catherine Stoner, we don't know who blew up the the Nord Stream pipelines this week, but why why do you think Russia might do so? They didn't blow them up. They they created leaks. In okay. Them, and they did it at an interesting time when um, the Swedish it was in Swedish and Norwegian territorial waters, but it was punctures in North in uh, or explosions near Nord Stream One and Nord Stream Two, and um, Nord Stream Two at least uh, Nord Stream One at least did have gas in it, even though it wasn't open and openly flowing. Uh, so why do this? Well, they did it the day before this Norwegian-Polish gas pipeline opened under the Baltic Sea. Mm -hmm. So perhaps to demonstrate, look what we can do. Um, and second, the biggest issue is because they haven't been delivering the negotiated uh, natural gas through especially Nord Stream 1, as was promised, they are subject to breach of contract penalties. And if there is damage now uh, to the 
pipelines, then they can't deliver it. And so they won't be potentially subject to breach of contract penalties. Those are two you know, possible explanations and, and demonstrating that they can do this to any pipeline. They did it at this particular time for a reason. Um, and they can also do it to underwater fiber lines. And we even sort of have an idea of who may have done it out of St. Petersburg or what outfit, um, which is uh, it's called Googie, um, which is the chief administration for deep sea research. And they would have the, the small submersibles that would be capable of doing this. OK, now we've mentioned uh, the referenda that Putin has endorsed in the occupied Ukrainian territory. And then, of course, we've also mentioned Putin's calling up the 300,000 reservists, and of course he's warning about nuclear strikes. Doesn't all this just reinforce this concern on the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis soon approaching, Giselle, that a desperate Putin here, especially if indeed the Kremlin has uh, leaked these uh, Nord Stream pipelines, isn't a desperate Putin a dangerous Putin? Giselle. He was plenty dangerous to begin with, and he was more dangerous when he had tools at his command that had greater utility. Was he dangerous? Because critics like John Mearsheimer well, would argue that he was reactive to provocative Western policy. Yeah, he'd be you, wrong, you know, but go ahead. Yeah, if you asked Ukrainians or Georgians or Syrians or... Uh, Eastern Europeans uh, from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, they would say he was plenty dangerous. And he still remains dangerous, sort of. But he's bogged down in Ukraine. Well, that's a good thing. Okay. I mean, that it is not the worst possible outcome uh, of this this conflict. Yeah. I mean, this was supposed to be a three day special operation slash victory parade. Yeah. And uh, a reunion with our Ukrainian. Brothers, it's gone very south for for Putin and for and for Russia. Final yeah. word, Catherine Stoner. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. Uh, I think Giselle's right. Um, I, unfortunately, we're in adamant agreement. I, I think it's. Uh, you know, it, it, you said, won't we provoke him into doing something rash? Well, he's already done something rash, something he didn't need to do, and not every other Russian leader would do. He decided he would he would attack his peaceful neighbor under false pretenses, even though denying it as he amassed 130,000 troops on their border that he wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it. And then, uh, because he had bad intelligence, evidently, and thought that the Ukrainians would um, love to be liberated and and greet those tanks with flowers, um, they were greeted with Molotov cocktails, kind of similar story to what we saw in Iraq, right, when the U.S. went in there. And so now he can't back down because it's existential, in a sense, for him uh, staying in power. He looks like a loser. And even his allies, Xi Jinping and, and Modi in India, you know, kind of made mm. that point to him in Central Asia. So he's created this problem for himself. And, and I think it will be very difficult to get out of it. But you can see what he's trying to do. Catherine, Giselle, great to have you back on Between the Lines. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Tom. That's Catherine Stoner, Professor of Political Science at Stanford University in California, and Giselle Donnelly, a Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. Up next, is the transition to a green economy what Mao Zedong called a great leap forward?
Well, the world still depends on hydrocarbons for more than 80% of all energy, whereas solar and wind technologies today, they supply barely 5% of global energy. It's quite striking, isn't it? And it's not surprising that governments, and we should remember they're mainly rich Western nations, they're the ones accelerating efforts to reach a carbon-free world within just a few decades. It's a dramatic change. In many respects, it amounts to the most radical economic transformation since the Industrial Revolution. But according to our guests, the green scramble to transition from fossil fuels to renewables, well, that's reminiscent of, get this, China's forced industrialization of the 1950s and early 1960s. Helen Rowley is author of Backlash, How China's Aggression Has Backfired. Helen was born in the People's Republic of China and she moved to the United States as a student in 1996 before becoming a US citizen. These days, she lives in Colorado. Helen, welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you for having me, Tom. Helen, before we address the energy transition, just tell us about the Great Leap Forward. Now, this was under the Chinese communist dictator Mao Zedong. Uh, what did it mean? Well, so back in 1950s when Mao was in charge, he became really impatient with China's slow economic growth. So he came out with an artificial deadline. He wanted to see China to quickly be transformed from an agriculture society into a communist-run industrial powerhouse within two decades. So he launched this so-called Great Leap Forward movement. Basically, instead of uh, following the building blocks to go to the socialism uh, slash communism as Karl Marx laid out, he wanted to jumpstart. He wanted to run into, take his whole country, run into communism. One of the most notorious initiative was he set a goal. He wanted China's steel production to surpass United Kingdom in less than 15 years. That's the artificial deadline he set. To put this in perspective, back in 1957, the GDP per capita in United Kingdom was about $1,400, while China's was $80, $80. Yeah, it was there's a huge difference between those two countries. So it, it, it was a very unrealistic goal, but because the chairman Mao said, said so, so everybody, was set to carry out his, his wish. So everywhere in China, including small villages, my dad uh, lived, people build those backyard furnaces, try to produce steels, and they throw everything from the cooking pot, anything contained the metal, from cooking pot to scissors into the furnace, and they burn everything they couldn't find. And in the end, all these efforts yield useless pig irons that really couldn't make steel. Helen, in your Wall Street Journal article about this subject, you make the point that the, and I'm reading this, the combination of lies, failed experiments, absence of labour, and violent requisition practices that led to famine. Tell us more. This massive steel campaign involved everybody, especially farmers. Farmers actually had to take turns. They had to take turns to watch the furnace burning, keep the furnace burning for 24-7. So Besides just being an enormous waste of natural resources and human resources, the steel campaign diverted the manpower, you know, farmers who should focus on farming, but they were focused on the backyard furnaces. 
you know, not only they're exhausted to take care of the backyard furnaces, at the same time, they have to meet the government's unrealistic uh, rice, you know, grain production quotas because Mao, want, he needed the grains to feed the growing numbers of uh, industrial workers and the armies. And he also exported grains to the Soviet Union in exchange for weapons and industrial assistance. So the government kept setting higher and higher green requisition target. And initially the local officials tried to force farmers to experiment something hasn't hasn't even been you know scientifically approved. For example, they promise, oh, if you just plant crops really, really close next to each other with no breathing room, somehow that's gonna yield, increase the yield. When those kind of experiments failed, then they just start lying because the upper higher up will not yield about the quotas. So, you know, lies going around every layer. And then a lie came back down to farmers. Farmers were forced to hand over everything they had, including next year, the following year's seeds to meet the government uh, procurement quotas. And there's any resistance would be violently suppressed. So this, this is became a bad cycle. So they could only do this once, but once they were able to meet the quota, then the government set even higher quotas. So this became unsustainable cycle. Then in 1958, this cycle couldn't last and there's a nationwide famine emerged. And it's actually lasted four years from 1958 to 1962. But in a Chinese history book, they pretend it only happened for three years and they pretend it was caused by natural uh, disaster. There was no natural disaster caused to happen. We are talking about communist China's forced industrialization. The consequences were horrific. But this is the intriguing thing about your argument in the Wall Street Journal. You say that the energy transition that the West is, is primarily the West that's embarking on, that brings to mind uh, that uh, great leap forward. How so? So I saw several resemblance to those two movements between Mao's Great Leap Forward and what's happening, there's a green movement in the West. It's true that the scale of catastrophe in the West hasn't reached nearly close to what had happened in China. But there are several resemblance. First is the impatience from those in charge, right? As I mentioned, Mao launched the Great Leap Forward because he was impatient with the slow progress of China's economic growth. And here we have those who advocate for green movement. They became impatient with our economy's current reliance on fossil fuels. And this, they both set this artificial deadline that they want something to happen. And, and the, the artificial deadline are totally divorced from reality, from the law of nature and the eco economics, right? So Mao want to catch up the UK's industrialization in 15 years, and the EU and both and, and the Biden administration said that 2030 as the artificial deadline, we must cut greenhouse gas pollution by uh, emission by 50%. Another resemblance is how those changes has been enforced. It's a top-down approach. Both movements had this top-down approach. So in China, Mao decided, then that became an order, just passed down to the lower level, and people had to somehow find a way to make it happen. It happened here in the West too. Somehow the green elites decided this is, has to happen, and then we all forced to obey to, to force to make this happen overnight. And then last but not least is actually the most important one is both movement produced the disasters. Back in China, 
the great leap forward caught, resulted 30 to more than, uh, 30 to 40 million people, uh, Chinese people perished in starvation. It's true that we haven't in the West, the green movement haven't caused that yet, but there are warning signs everywhere. All we have to do is just look at what's happening in Sri Lanka, what's happening in, you know, in Germany, in, Euro in Europe this winter, that we know it's coming. I mean, I can just imagine many listeners tuning in would be saying this is a big stretch to compare Mao's great leap forward with an energy transition that is, at least in the Western world, it's supported by the majority of the public to mitigate against climate change. And, you know, China's forced industrialisation, as you've made very clear, Helen, that has led to death, to destruction across mainland China in the 60s. But the green scramble to transform energy, that's designed to address man-made global warming that many listeners might say will lead to catastrophe. How would you respond to their concerns? Well, I have one sentence. Energy is food. Food is energy. I think most of us, whether you're on the left or the right, most of us have failed, have failed to appreciate how much food security is heavily dependent on fossil fuel, oil and gas. Let me give you one example. Let's talk about synthetic fertilizers. You know, 90% of synthetic fertilizers are made out of natural gas. Why is synthetic fertilizers important? Synthetic fertilizer is why, even though today we have much uh, fewer available farmlands than we had 20 years ago, but we are able to feed close to 8 billion people on this planet. Let's use Sri Lanka as an example. Sri Lanka's government was persuaded by West green elites. The Sri Lanka government banned the use, banned its farmers from using synthetic fertilizers last year. Overnight, banned all of them from using synthetic fertilizer. This is what happened. This year, there were widespread food shortages in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka used to be self-sufficient for rice production. They were even able to export rice to exchange for foreign exchange. And now Sri Lanka ex experienced this economic and political turmoil mm. because people are starving. Mm. So mm. This, is, this is a real life example. It's not that far fetched just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. And, and we even see this happening in the West too. For the first time in decades, the standard of living in the Western nations are going down. You know, Germanists are telling people now to not to take hot showers and wear extra jumpers for this winter because of energy shortage. I mean, the food inflation, even in the United States, there are more people going hungry in one of the wealthiest nations in the world. On planet, people are yeah, going I know, home. but the critics listening in would say that's because of the Ukraine crisis and, it, crisis and it has nothing to do with the energy transition. That's what they'd say. Well, that's what they say, but it's not true. The synthetic fertilizer surprise has increased 300% before Russia invaded Ukraine. Again, because synthetic fertilizer are mainly came, made out of a natural gas, the price of synthetic fertilizer increased because the price of natural gas price increased. The reason natural, natural gas price increased because both the EU and the United States are shutting down natural gas, natural gas productions. They reduce the supply. Of course, we reduce supply. Price will go up. This happened long before mm. Russia invaded Ukraine. Well, the other intriguing part of the energy transition, and you've made this point in your various commentaries, as the West is accelerating its decarbonised agenda, it's actually China that's rapidly accelerating coal production. Get a load of this, Helen. This is Climate Action Tracker 
between 2015 and 2021, China's emissions increased by 11%, while the United States, and remember, we're talking about the Trump era, in the mm -hmm. United States, it reduced its emissions by 6%. So how do you account for China's coal boom? We have to give Chinese government credit where credit is due. It's playing it very smartly. It only pays lip service to the West Green Revolution because it knows it can gain political leverage over the West Green advocates. But at the same time, China always made it clear it needs coal for several reasons. Number one, China has plenty of coal supply. And number two, coal is one of the cheapest energy sources. And China needs it to help meet its industrial as well as residential energy demands. Number three, coal industry not only create jobs, but as well as the demand for Chinese made solar panels and the batteries for electrical vehicles increased. China has keep building more factories and hire more people to make those so-called green experts. And guess what? From mineral extraction to making those parts and green exports, they are high, those processes are highly energy intensive. So yeah, China is not likely to give up yes. coal anything. I, okay, well, given that China remains heavily reliant on fossil fuels and they need that carbon energy, as you say, to grow their economies and also to reduce poverty, which they've done over the last 30 to 40 years, Given all that, how does the Chinese Communist Party, and we mentioned the Great Leap Forward before, how do they regard the West's uh, attempts to accelerate the decarbonisation agenda, Helen? Well, these definitely see the Western decarbonisation movement as a strategic advantage for China in several ways. Number one is the movement obviously has weakened the economy in the West and put the many countries' national security at risk as we are witness again what's happening in Europe and Germany is a perfect example and here United States kind of California is telling its residents not to charge EVs or turn down the ACs and so there's a economic standard of living has been declined and not, nothing delights the CCP more than to witness the West's self-imposed decline so that's one and secondly the West green movement have driven up demand for China's uh, green exports, solar panels, EV batteries. So it's good for China's economy. And the more the West depend, the green economy depends on the Chinese economy, the more it gives China both economic and political leverage that it can deploy. You know, for example, it will become very difficult. Let's suppose China invades Taiwan. It will be very difficult for the West to impose the similar sanctions they impose against Russia, you know, because China cut, cut off the solar panel export to the West, how the West gonna continue to carry out its green movement, right? And that's why you see the progressives, the green advocates in the West, they see climate change is such a bigger threat than the CCP. They would rather turn a blind eye to the CCP's human rights violation. For example, last year, more than two dozen progressive organizations sent a letter to the Biden administration and demanded the administration to tone down its anti-China policies because they said that we need China's cooperation on climate change. So China, the, the CCP constantly use negotiation of climate change as a leverage to reach its political goals. 
That was Helen Rally. She's author of Backlash, How China's Aggression Has Backfired. And we've been discussing her recent Wall Street Journal article, The West Mimics Mao, It Takes a Green Leap Forward. Up next, setting the record straight on Britain's most misunderstood monarch. Well, he was Britain's longest-serving king from 1760 to 1820 during a time of significant change and upheaval, the American War of Independence, the war against Napoleon, and then there was the changing role of Parliament and the monarchy. Tumultuous times. So who was King George III? What was he really like? Now, the musical Hamilton and films like The Madness of King George They portray him in a dim and unflattering light. But the distinguished historian Andrew Roberts says his sullied reputation is completely wrong. And in his new book, he makes a compelling case for rehabilitating and reappraising his life and legacy. Andrew Roberts, as I say, is one of Britain's most distinguished historians. He's a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institute and the King's College London. He's written and edited, get this, some 19 books. His most recent book is called The Last King of America, George III. It's the life and reign of Britain's most misunderstood monarch. And the last time we had Andrew on the program, he was talking about another famous Brit, Winston Churchill. Andrew, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much indeed. It's great to be back on. Now, you're right that there's a lot of things we get wrong about King George III. Let's start with his illness. What's the myth and what was the reality? The myth is that he had a disease called porphyria, um, which is a which is a, a horrible disease that does indeed send people mad. Um, but in fact, that comes about as a because of a series of misdiagnoses back in the 1960s, where a um, a mother and son medical team basically gave the wrong symptoms to uh, doctors, and uh, created this uh, this. Um, diagnosis of porphyria. He didn't have porphyria. He had bipolar disorder affective type 1. It's a form of manic depression. So that is one of a a, a series of myths about uh, George III that I was able to uh, uh, dispel in my book. Yes, the stigma of mental illness coloured his reputation until now. Now, his mental illness, that's thought to have played a part in the loss of the American colonies. But my sense is from reading your book is his illness didn't manifest until 1788, so a few years after the event, right? That's absolutely right, yes. A lot of Americans are under the impression that it was partly yeah. because he was mad um, that he um, lost the American colonies. But as you say, um, the colonies were lost by 1783, five years before the first mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. outbreak. So in fact, uh, it had nothing to do with the, with the loss of America at all. And he comes from an incredibly dysfunctional family. Just how bad was it? Oh, very weird indeed. The Hanoverians all hated each other. There's there's not a single 
generation of the of the Hanoverians who didn't loathe their parents and children, um, except for uh, George the Third, who, although he did loathe his son, perfectly understandable because his son George the Fourth was indeed loathsome, actually loved his father. But unfortunately, his father died when George the Third was twelve years old, and so he never really had an opportunity to fall out with him. I suppose. Yeah, he says his grandfather hated everyone. He wouldn't bury his son. He let his body decompose in the room above a young King George. That's right. Yes, he, the poor George III, uh, had had the um, had the decomposing corpse of his father in the room above his bedroom uh, until the stench became Good so Lord. impossible that finally they uh, they buried him in Westminster Abbey. And this so this twelve year old had to put up with this. Understandably, oh. loathed his grandfather George II, who had uh, who, as you said, had hated his own son Frederick Prince of Wales so much that he wouldn't even allow. <laughs> corpse to be buried. <laughs> well, there are a lot of quirky and eccentric monarchies in Europe at this time. I mean, how does how does this family <laughs> how do they compare with the other European monarchies at that time? Well, yeah, you're quite right. Of course, Frederick the Great, um, his father um, threatened to have Frederick the Great um, executed and in, instead executed his best friend. Um, the Russians were particularly vicious uh, intergenerationally. And then there were four or five monarchs of the time that who actually did go mad, like George III did. And then the, the King of Sweden, uh, I go into it in my book, I don't really want to say over the radio how his madness manifested itself, but it was pretty disgusting. <laughs> and uh, so all in all... There was um, there was a, a lot of uh, mental instability in the in the royal families of the day. Yes, oh, goodness me. Well, King George. I mean, he's he's also portrayed as something of a barbarian, a brute, a buffoon, and a tyrant. And but you argue Renaissance man. That's a, that's actually a more powerful, more accurate description. And you say he's one of the most cultured of British kings. Tell us about his intellectual interests and cultural pursuits. Yes, it's a completely um, appalling myth. Poor um, George III had been made out to be all these things that you mentioned. Whereas, in fact, um, he was uh, probably one of our most cultured monarchs. He he set up the Royal Academy, for example, which uh, was intended to, and still does, in fact, increase the social status of uh, of artists. He um, created a library of some 80,000 books, which forms the centre of the British Library today. He was um, instrumental in helping to buy the telescope through which Herschel discovered Uranus, the planet which originally was named after George III. And then they went, uh, the, he, he was a uh, very interested, of course, in Georgian architecture, a promoter of uh, some of the great architects of the day. He, in music, brought Handel, Mozart. Uh, Handel said of him that while this boy lives, my, my uh, music needs no other champion Haydn he tried to keep in the country you know it's a fantastic wow. he could play three instruments and so on you know the, the, the idea that this man was a brute is completely uh, absurd his scientific instrument yeah. collection it was the largest one in the world at the time yeah clearly sophisticated he had enlightened beliefs but he he famously never traveled right so he never really went anywhere why was that um, he felt that he uh, could sort of understand the world from the vast collection of topographical maps that he had, some 40,000 maps, which are presently in the British uh, Museum. He is a, uh, it's a very sort of strange thing that he 
Although he was king of uh, Scotland and Ireland, he never went to either of them. He was elector of Hanover, never went there, uh, obviously never went to America, and spent most of his life really in the in the home counties of England, never terribly far away from, from London. He never went um, north of, of uh, Worcester, for example, or west of Plymouth. What about King George's views on slavery? Well, these are very, very interesting, especially as you can imagine, because uh, that is such a hot topic historically at the moment. Um, when he was Prince of Wales, he actually denounced slavery in a essay that he was writing, that he wrote uh, sometime in the 1750s. We don't know exactly when. And uh, and he was, uh, I quoted obviously in the book, um, tremendously opposed to slavery. He never bought or sold a slave in his life. He never invested in any of the companies that did that kind of thing. Um, and of course, he signed into legislation the abolition of the slave trade. Sorry for my ignorance. Is this the work of uh, Wilberforce? That's right. Yes, exactly. And he yeah. and he talked to Wil to Wilberforce uh, in the uh, in audiences. You know, he he, he knew Wilberforce and discussed um, things with Wilberforce, including slavery. But he uh, didn't put any of his political power behind the uh, the abolition movement, despite knowing it to be wrong. So there is a there's a quite a serious sort of moral blot on his escutcheon for that. Okay, now in 2015, the Queen released some 100,000 pages of King George III's personal papers and correspondence. You've studied the documents, Andrew. What insights did you gain about him as a person? Oh, well, he's a completely different figure from the uh, from the one that so much of history um, assumes him to have been. He was called, Thomas Paine called him the, uh, uh, the moral brute of Britain, which um, <laughs> is the exact opposite of what you get from reading his papers and letters and diaries and correspondence and memoranda and so on, which, as you say, has been brilliantly curated by uh, the Royal Archives and King's College London. They've done a wonderful job, uh, this this Georgian Papers project, and it's ongoing. They're doing William the Fourth uh, and George the fourth at the moment and so the uh, the papers do really reveal a completely different figure including as i mentioned earlier this person who was prince of wales wanted to abolish slavery uh, just after the queen died recently i interviewed a professor david flint who's the leading monarchist in australia andrew and he distinguished two different types of monarchies the one from the glorious revolution so that's what 1688 right through to the late 1700s, early 1800s, so King George III's reign, and the monarchy that came afterwards. And he distinguishes these two monarchies by talking about the role and the relationship between Parliament and the monarchy. That clearly changed during his era. Tell us more about King George III and how he understands the concepts like divine rule and constitutional monarchy, and how did he engage with the politics of the day? Because this was a transformational period for the monarchy, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, not least, of course, because he did go mad on several occasions, and therefore we had a regency, um, and that you know that of course wound up um, give, giving essentially giving more powers to. Um, the uh, politicians. But there's a huge difference, of course, between the de facto powers, the actual powers that uh, the king exercises, and the de jure, de jure rights and privileges and prerogatives that he has in theory. I mean, in theory, George III could have 
vetoed a parliamentary bill passed by the Commons and Lords, but um, that hadn't happened since Queen Anne in 1709 and certainly didn't happen under him. He did appoint and dismiss prime ministers. Uh, he had uh, 15 of them in his, 16, sorry, in his uh, in his reign. But, about as many as, but, as Queen as, Elizabeth. She had something like 16 yes, as well, Yes, yes, just, yeah, she, had, she had 15, exactly, yes. Harold Wilson, <laughs> if you count him twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, four, to four times actually, Harold Wilson was in in all, but nonetheless, uh, you, no, so, so, well, so she had fifteen now. different. She had fifteen <laughs> different prime ministers, and he had sixteen different prime ministers right. um, in a shorter in a shorter reign. She lasted course. longer. She did. She did. Uh, no, absolutely. And so, um, and so, yes, um, Professor Flint is right. There, there is a a shift that comes after. George III to the period where in Queen Victoria's time, essentially who who is prime minister is no longer really in her say. That is decided by electorates and, and parliaments rather than by the monarch. My guest is historian Andrew Roberts, and we're discussing his recent book, The Last King of America, George III, The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch. Andrew, let's turn to the American colonies and the War of Independence in the 1770s. The Declaration of Independence, it's a revered and, frankly, an outstanding document, but you see a strong element of propaganda in it. Tell us more. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, the first third of it is a sublime document, absolutely beautiful. It makes you proud to be uh, human reading some of those uh, those sentiments. But then the next two thirds, you have a series of 28 clauses accusing George III of things that he's essentially innocent of. Only two of the 28 is he guilty of. Um, but those two the 17th clause, which is about taxation, and the 22nd, which is about British veto rights over American legislation, they in and of themselves justify the American Revolution. But there's an awful lot of other stuff, ex post facto rationalization and accusing him of things that all British monarchs had done since uh, Oliver Cromwell and before, you know, that simply don't stack up or for, for one reason or another are essentially sort of lawyers padding that Thomas Jefferson put into the declaration uh, in order to um, to essentially pad it out. It's, it's wartime propaganda as opposed to real jurisprudence. So is that why, I mean, you mentioned Thomas Jefferson there, but it's really the American founding fathers. Did they need to paint King George in the worst possible light to boost their case in domestic support? I mean, is that is that why George's place in history is tarnished? Precisely that. That and also the fact that the um, the Whig historians of um, of Britain for 200 years very much um, took the same stance and tried to make George III out to be a, a tyrant, which he most certainly was not. You know, he was a limited uh, government, limited um, constitutional king who um, revered the um, the glorious revolution and didn't for a moment believe in the divine right of kings or any of that sort of Stuart absolutist um, yeah. rubbish. So all in all, um, you know, the, the, the thing together, the, the American founding fathers and their need for a wartime propaganda, a totally understandable need, um, mind you, but, and also the British historians of the 19th century have together managed to blacken his name for 200 years. Yes, yes, and this is all part of the mythology of American nationhood, 
saying that the king was responsible for the, for the defeat and the loss of the American colonies, but you make it clear that it's Parliament, right? They made the decisions and prosecuted the unsuccessful war, right? At Parliament, and yes, and the ministers, the government, Lord North's government, um, who was who was pretty much the least successful uh, prime minister we've ever had, um, a very jolly and good-natured person as a as a sort of domestic prime minister, he was fine. But the minute that uh, he had to fight a war, especially a long war uh, in America, a long way away, um, he made every mistake possible. And we also were pretty badly let down by the generals as well. They weren't an admirals. They weren't up to much. Um, and, uh, and of course, you have to remember, you're up against some of the most brilliant Americans of their uh, yes. of, of, of their entire history, you know. I mean, you've got you've got some truly extraordinarily impressive Americans who were who were against uh, the British at the time, and some British uh, distinguished American historians, Andrew, have argued that the King was guilty, or at least he played a role in the events that um, helped galvanise and spark the American uprising. I mean, they'd say the Stamp Act, the tax on tea, for example. How would you respond to them? Well, um, the Stamp Act actually was repealed because George III uh, made sure that his supporters in Parliament voted against it. So, um, the um, so I, I don't think that that that's fair with regard to the tax on tea, which is a really which is a really important thing because, of course, it leads to the Boston Tea Party, and, uh, and you within six months you actually have shots being fired in uh, just outside Boston. Um, that is something that he was in favour of. And so uh, in my book, I do go through the various um, the various sort of declensions of that, of the outbreak of that war and uh, and work out the things he was, he was um, right about and the things he was wrong about. Uh, essentially, he was more right than wrong, but he wasn't always right <laughs> to sum it up. Then there's an almighty battle with the French, but by this time his illness takes over. What 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 condition was he in, and and how did he see out the the last part of his life? Well, he was fine for the first um, f- first what seventeen years of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. So he was a mm. you know he was very much uh, around and compost mentis, and he was a he was a good wartime leader uh, until eighteen ten when he then slipped into his his final um, 10 years of complete madness. And the poor man, he was blind and deaf and senile and mad by the end of his life. So he wasn't in any sense a ruler from 1810 onwards. And so he didn't know that we'd won the Battle of Waterloo, for example. But in earlier parts, the Battle of Trafalgar, for example, he did know about and uh, and he was able to ennoble um, Nelson and, and later Wellington. Now, listen, this is a cheeky question coming from an Australian, but I found it intriguing that you hardly, I couldn't find it, frankly, any reference to the British settlement of Sydney Cove in 1788, right smack in the middle of King George III's reign. Why was that? Uh, Well, I I do mention Captain Cook's... um... Captain Cook's, it's like a footnote uh, almost. There's, there's not much. I mean, did, there's not much on it though. The, the the Arthur, Governor Arthur, and the First Fleet. I mean, why did you um, not play more emphasis on that? I mean, this was essentially the founding of modern Australia. I'm sorry about that. Um, now you come to mention it, you're right. There isn't a huge amount uh, <laughs> about uh, about Australia. 
when I think about it, it's it's largely because he himself personally wasn't involved in it. Uh, he gave some money to um, to track the transit of Venus in seventeen, I think, sixty nine. Somebody who was going to the South Sea Islands, but otherwise he didn't take a huge personal interest. He wasn't interested in India, for example, as well. It rather fits in with this enormous lacuna in his uh, in his imagination essentially that he he wasn't terribly interested in. and i and and so you know it was a biography of him rather than a history of uh, of the late 18th century if i was writing that of course i'd write a lot about australia Andrew, I'm just keeping you on your toes. Now, finally, (laughs) as we remember and reflect on the passing of Queen Elizabeth and her long reign, is there a legacy that the modern royals might owe to King George III? Oh, yes, very much. Um, He was a, uh, I think uh, King Charles III has got got, um, various things that he could learn from his great, 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 great grandfather. Um, the first <laughs> is that he is, I'm, I'm pretty sure there might be an extra great in there that I missed out, I'm afraid, but we'll, uh, fingers, <laughs> fingers crossed I got it right. Um, the the first is um, George III was particularly uh, frugal in his eating and drinking. He was very financially prudent. Uh, he was somebody who uh, Put duty and hard work at the very centre of his uh, of his reign. So I think that um, just like Elizabeth II did, I think that uh, Charles the Third could could learn a good deal from uh, from George the Third. The book is called The Last King of America, George the Third: The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch. Andrew, I understand your next book, due out very soon, has as its subject the British press baron Lord Northcliffe, correct? Yes, that's right, exactly, who uh, who did have quite a lot to do with Australia and visited in Australia, and uh, there's a, there's a pretty much an t- entire chapter on uh, Australia, so I, I, I mustn't be <laughs> accused of being a, an Aussie-phobe. If there's such a word. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, congratulations on a magnificent piece of work. It's it's wonderful to have you again on Between the Lines. You are kind. Thank you very much indeed. I've much enjoyed it. That's the distinguished historian, Andrew Roberts. And that's the show. And if you've missed or would like to catch up on recent Between the Lines episodes, including historian James Curran, and his thoughts on what a diminished sense of Britishness means for Australian identity and the pursuit of a republic, or the Wall Street Journal columnist Joe Sternberg on the causes behind Europe's looming energy crisis, they're all available online and for free. Details on the homepage, or just scroll back through your recent podcast feeds. Until next time, I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.